during the worship, um, I was just feeling one of the passages I, I have in this talk uh, very strongly, uh, which is in Romans chapter 8. <clears throat> you can see the topic is faith in the resurrection. Um, the songs were, not surprisingly, the Sunday after Easter, a lot about the resurrection and um, what Christ has done for us. Um, the passage that I was feeling so strongly was uh, in, about how creation is groaning, waiting for the revelation of the children of God. I think our world doesn't really see that very well. Something terrible and tragic happened last Sunday while um, we were celebrating baptism here. Hello. A beautiful and a wonderful thing, uh, a celebration of faith, a celebration of commitment, a celebration of joining God's family. It's wonderful to see that, to hear testimonies, to see how Jesus has changed people's lives. Half of the world away, a whole bunch of Christians were dying for their faith. Uh, you probably remember that. Uh, you probably heard it on the news, but not a whole lot. Uh, I don't want to get into comparisons, but something else that happened in New Zealand, the outrage lasted for a full week on the major media. The death of 360 Christians in Sri Lanka was like a burp compared to that, but anyway. So just, just a reminder that although we live in a wonderful country where we're free to worship at this point, um, being a Christian is a dangerous thing, becoming more dangerous. So we are blessed that we're here where it's really not very dangerous. If we have a little bit of persecution, it's like people make fun of us and stuff like that. All right. Major, uh, one of the main passages that I had in mind here is, is from 1 Peter 3.15, always be ready to make a reply to anyone who asks you to explain the hope that is in you. And that begs the question, what is the hope that is within us? What's the hope that's within you? And if somebody were to ask you, why do you follow Jesus? I mean, what hope is there in that? The world's answer would be, you know, like, the guy's dead, right? I mean, he died 2,000 years ago. What do you follow somebody like that for? Definition of faith, biblical definition of faith is in Hebrews 11, uh, verse 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. The assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. They look invisible, but in our experience, you can see plenty of it. Some, some people in this room went to help other people in this room in this past week with really tough stuff that was going on. That's part of the conviction that we have that we're part of a family. I didn't make it out to that, but for those of you that did, that was a wonderful demonstration of what we're about, what the hope that we have is about. 
What does the world think of our faith? Well, a lot of people in the world are going to say our belief in God and our trust in God is just a crutch because you can't live life. You're not tough enough to make it on your own, so you turn to this invisible, perhaps non-existent entity. And that brings us back to where does that attitude come from? It comes to us from the original temptation that, God, that, that the devil gave to Eve and Adam. The thing is that one of the reasons we have such a hard time in our culture even hearing the message of faith is that we're addicted to being God. We're addicted to being God for ourselves. That's how most of us live our lives until we discover that it's not a very good way to go. It's really hard to give up addictions, and this is one of the major addictions that we have. People don't want God because they fear, they fear that if they do, they'll be taken in, it'll be like a hoax. Or perhaps they fear looking stupid in front of their friends. What are people going to think of me if I do something like that? It's not a popular thing to do. It's not a cool thing to do. Or we fear losing our identity. You're kidding me. I'll have to become a different person. I'll have to give up, fill in the blank. Perhaps more than one thing that you're going to fill in that blank, right? You've probably had discussions like that with people at various points along the way. Uh, I certainly have. Another problem is, of course, that people's image of what believers are like. You probably heard this one. Well, why would I do that? You know, church and religion is full of hypocrisy. It's just all a whole bunch of hypocrites. And you know, the truth is that everybody's a hypocrite because none of us lives 100% consistent with what we say. It doesn't matter whether you believe in Jesus or you believe in something else. You're a hypocrite. So that's a phony, bogus excuse that, you know, like if I go to church, it'll be just a bunch of hypocrites. Well, you'll just add to the number, you know, so, uh, you know, like, uh, likes attract sometimes. Actually, they say opposites attract, but sometimes we like to be around people that are like us. The reality is that a lot of us won't face the Creator because it'll mean such a huge difference to the way we live our lives. If you don't, if you want to stay, you know, your own God, well, or say, well, you know what, I'll, I'll follow some other God, right? What are the popular gods people follow now? Well, of course, we can see them all, right? Um, entertainment, amusement, wealth, power, choose it. They're out there. It all boils down to simple choice, right? Jesus said we will either follow him or we'll follow something else that he named. Mammon. He just called it mammon. Mammon is the Greek word that Jesus uses there. We sometimes translate it different ways. Some people say money. Money doesn't cut it. It's not a good translation. It's one thing that's part of it. Mammon was a demon. A demon that incarnates that whole fleshly way of living. So there are all these reasons about why 
people won't follow God. That's just... And another thing that might come into that is previous disappointments that we've had. Disappointments in life that leave us with questions. I mean, how could there be a God? God isn't fair. If he's around, he's not fair. I mean, how can you explain that, right? And that's the biggest thing that I run into, and maybe you have, um, in the last 10, 15 years probably, is that you cannot say that there is a good God when the world is full of that stuff that's happening, like over in Sri Lanka or in New Zealand or wherever you want to pick, whatever thing you want to pick. How can there be a good God behind that? We'll get back to that. Some of the issues then we talk, that we run into is, is that um, sometimes we, we think that when we communicate, we need to communicate our message, our hope, through doctrines or something. But knowing a bunch of stuff isn't equal to faith. The word in Hebrew and Greek, both of those words, okay, mean trust. Basically, they mean trust. Faith is built on trust. If you have faith in somebody, it's because you trust them. If you have faith in somebody's word, it's because you know that word is good by the experience you have with the person that stands behind it, or perhaps the organization. Maybe in business, you trust a, a business to do what they say they will do, according to a contract or something like that. Reputations are built on fulfilling trust. And it's similar to that in the spiritual life. If we say that we trust God, that is going to be built, going to be built on our experience with God. It might start with when you looked at somebody else's life and you saw that the stuff they said about God was you could see true in their life. Maybe not perfect, but largely true. And that's attractive. We don't, we don't win people by arguing them into the kingdom. It's not going to happen that way. I've tried it and failed many times. Um, I'm a pretty good talker, debater, but you don't debate people into the kingdom. I mean, you might even convince them they're wrong, but they still are going to come into the kingdom because of that. Insisting on that can be legalistic, etc. You may know somebody who's lost their faith. What that means is they've lost their trust in God. They had it, or at least it sure seemed like they had it. At some point, they had it, and it's gone. They just can't get it back. So... Something happened to change that. But the hardest question we have to deal with, and this is really where this thing is going, is this one. The number one hard question out there, I don't know, maybe it isn't your personal hardest question, but it certainly is for me, is this problem of evil and suffering. And everybody, when they're hit with something, is going to respond in a very similar way. Why me? or why this person I care about, or why this now, here, etc. 
And sometimes, even often, perhaps almost always, the most honest answer we can give is, I don't know. Stuff happens, and it even happens to good people. And there's books written about that, you know, why bad things happen to good people. Philip Yancey, okay, in case you're looking for a Christian perspective on that. Or C.S. Lewis, The Problem of Pain, okay. Or a more recent one, N.T. Wright, um, Evil and the Justice of God, wonderful book. Evil and the Justice of God, the best thing recently that I've read. C.S. Lewis um, wrote a tiny little book that he never intended to be published, but eventually after he got through the biggest crisis in his personal life, the death of his wife uh, from cancer, some of you may not have even known that C.S. Lewis actually got married uh, and had an adopted son. But his wife died of cancer, and he went through, he almost lost his faith. And he wrote about that experience in a journal he kept, never intending for it to be published, because it's just raw. It is just raw. Um, But later, he was convinced to publish it after he got through the thing, because he realized, oh, maybe somebody else is going to... Anyway, that's called a grief observed. If you're going through something really tough on on that side of things, Or even if you're not, maybe it's better to read it when you're not, okay? Um, That's a very good source. The thing about this question is that the Bible doesn't give us a nice set answer to it. In fact, God doesn't set down some kind of formula somewhere and say, well, you know what? Uh, Here's why all this stuff happens, and, um, you know, here's how you get through it. He doesn't, doesn't do that. And the prime example we have is Job, right? And everybody knows the story of Job, yeah? Like Job was hit with just about everything that you can think of happening without yourself dying, okay? Like he wiped out his whole family, wiped out all his business, everything gone in the space of a, a few days. It was just all gone. And the only thing he had left was his wife who just got on his case and say, why don't you just curse God and die? I mean, why would you follow that God? Okay. And God never answered Job directly. He didn't, he eventually talked to Job after this very long thing where his friends came to comfort him and did everything but that. Um, And then God just told him, you have no right to question me. Jesus didn't even give a nice formula for us. But Jesus did something else that Job's friends never did. Jesus empathized with those suffering. He had compassion, and he gave real comfort. And sometimes that's all we have, right? Mostly. Sometimes we can do something practical. Old theology used to say this about it, okay? I hope you've never been told this, but I I know people that have been. I've even heard it. I've heard it explained about, you know, different situations. Some in my own family have got this kind of the feedback from people, and it's very hurtful. But anyway, you know what? Everybody's a sinner, right? 
and we all deserve to go to hell, so just suck it up. You don't deserve anything better or different, right? Next time you got somebody to comfort, go and tell them that. And see how much reception you're going to get. Now, here's one take on this, okay? I'm not saying this is a, a complete picture, but it is you know, far from a complete picture. But part of the problem is that God made us in his image. And we know that, you know, God made us in his image. What's that got to do with it? Because it means that we have a real capacity to choose. A real one, not a false one. It's really there. We can choose. We can create. I mean, the evidence of human creation is everywhere, right here. Some of our creation is good, and some of it's not so good. Well, that's the nature of what we are right now. We've got this mix. And what we do, what we choose to do, actually changes the world we live in. What that means is that when God made humans with this capacity, he was saying, I'm making you the stewards or the caretakers of this place. And your choices are going to form it and make changes in it. The problem was that when Adam and Eve decided that they were going to be God, right? That's what, that's what they said, is you shall be like God, knowing good from evil. Well, by taking that unto themselves, as they brought distortion, they, brought, they twisted the whole thing, and they opened the creation up to the stuff that we're experiencing within. Now, not everything that comes from, you know, human human input. If you were God at that point, you know, you had a choice too. You could say, uh-oh, this whole thing's gone haywire now, and maybe you should just wrap the whole thing up. Right? I made a mistake. Just wipe it out. Maybe try it again, maybe not. But God didn't do that. He left us there. And he left the world that way. I think part of that reason is that we, you know, we have a definition, character definition, you know, these things we say about God is love. God is good all the time, etc. right? These cliches we use. In reality, if we say that God is love, and he made us in his image with a real capacity to love or not. If he was to just say, I failed and wiped the whole thing out, he would be giving up on his creation, giving up on this love that he poured into us, poured, offered to us. And he would be taking away the, what we were made to be, people who also can love, beings who can also freely choose to love. Or he could have said, well, you know what, I'll just fix it and I'll make them unable to make bad choices anymore. But that, again, goes directly against who God is and who he made us to be. So we're saying maybe today, some people would say, why doesn't God just stop some people doing from some of those really bad things? Like, why do you let a guy like Hitler come along? Right? Or Stalin or choose your poison, you know? Choose one of those maniacs from history, Genghis Khan or somebody. Or even, there are even some 
wicked women in there too, like Catherine the Great or somebody like that, okay? Why didn't he stop it? Well, where does he start stopping stuff, right? Where? Which parts? If he chooses to stop one thing from one person, then why doesn't he stop them all? Well, again, you're back to the problem of when we have no choices. Just stop some people's choices and not others, right? And who is he going to, he'll go by his standards, but you and I will still look at it and say, that's not fair. You stopped me, but you didn't stop that person, right? Again, we're back to judging God according to the way we want. Now, here's a really tough one. The Old Testament's got some pretty difficult things in it where God tells the people going into Canaan to do some things that today we would describe as being horrible. Yeah? Am I the only person that has looked at that and say, wow, God, like, I mean, from my perspective, really? We call that genocide. Yeah? We call that massacre and all that kind of stuff. Now, you know, I have no right to judge God on that stuff, right? I really don't. But this is one of those questions that when I get there, I am really wanting to hear the answer on that. I know that it says the wickedness of the Canaanites was not yet full, and then he said, but now it's full, so get rid of them, right? And still in the Old Testament, you have the complete opposite. So here's God. Here over here he says, or he seems to say, wipe them out. But over here he says, he sends, he sends Jonah to a city that's the most wicked city on earth at the time, Nineveh, which is a huge city full of pagans that are carrying out massive conquests and massacring populations all around, you know, that area. They were the big empire at the time, the Assyrians. And he sends Jonah to them, and he says, get them to repent. And Jonah's response is, Lord, you can't be serious. And you know the story. He doesn't want to go. He ends up going, and he does his job, and they repent, and he's mad as heck against God, right? Come on, God. That's not fair. They're just going to carry on, right? I guess the point is that there's no way we can understand these things and judge God. We're not God. I don't see that whole picture. I just don't. And this is where the trust factor has to come back in. Why didn't God stop those people from killing 360 Christians a week ago? I don't know. I don't know. There are a lot of things, okay? A lot of injustices around. We can, you know, call them all out. And we don't need to go back to the bottom here. This side of heaven, or the second coming, the truth about the creation we live in is that there's no perfect justice. Not even in a peaceful country like Canada, there's no perfect justice. I mean, you can pick some things out here. They're pretty minor compared to just about anywhere else, but they're still here. 
The truth is that from the perspective we can look at, the innocent suffer. They do. Children that are abused and all that kind of stuff. You can, you can, you've seen, a lot of you have seen personally stuff that's like that. I'm just being, I'm just being realistic here, guys. But I do, I, I don't want to make you hopeless here. All right? This is not about that. This is, go, this is about God's answer to that. His ultimate answer. Not the answer to the questions that I have right now. Why did you let that happen? And et cetera, et cetera, right? We also know the other side of things that prayer changes things and actually stops things from happening. There's incredible stories about that. You may know some of them. You may have experienced some of them. Healings, right? God does that stuff. He really does. You may have had them in your personal life. You've seen other, you've prayed for other people. They've been healed. You've seen miracles happen. Maybe, some of you, I mean, genuine miracles, right? I mean, yeah, life is a miracle, etc. and it's beautiful. Creation is a miracle. But I'm talking about where you saw God's intervention radically change something that there was actually no way that it could have changed without that. That's true, too. Let's look at Paul for a second here. Okay, here's Paul's resume. Paul knew something about suffering, all right? Well, here's the positive resume from Paul first, or at least the stuff that you would look at if, the, if you, some of you uh, business managers, etc. a guy comes in with this resume, right, or you get, it on, you get it online or something, comes into you, and you say, wow, this guy's pretty impressive, right? Paul was fluent and very literate in four different languages. That's pretty good, right? Uh, in terms of his personal credentials, character, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees, which means, in equivalent terms today, he held a doctorate in Jewish and biblical studies. Mm-hmm. Top of his game. He was conversant enough with Greek literature and philosophy to hold his own with the top academics in Athens, which was the Harvard of the ancient world. You wanted to go and get the top-level education in the ancient world, you went to Athens. And he could go in there and take on the debaters. So he had the, more doctorates, right? He was the best theologian in the ancient world, bar none. Probably, perhaps, the best theologian that's ever lived. Very possibly. Well, on the practical side, he, he was an expert tent maker. He made a living doing that. He didn't go around begging. He could win a debate with anybody inside the church or out of it. Excuse the language down there, but this is what it actually says in Philippians chapter 3 when Paul is discussing his resume. You know what, I, you know what that lad is worth, guys? That. Hmm? And the Greek word is really that. I mean the Greek word that means that. It's kaka. <laughs> yeah, you can go and look it up. Okay. We still use that word. We think it's polite, right? Instead of saying the other word that I've spelled there. Second side of his resume. This is the stuff that happened to him that he listed when he was being challenged about the authenticity of his ministry. Well, show me an apostle that's done all this stuff. You can see a little bit of bragging perhaps here in a sort of like a backhanded way here. 
Not that anybody else would want to exactly have this resume, but anyway, multiple beatings with rods, stoned and left for dead, scourged, whipped several times, whipped with one of those nasty whips that were used by the Romans, shipwrecked four times. The last one is in the book of Acts. When he wrote about the three other ones, he was writing a letter. So the last one is not in that letter because it hadn't happened yet, but there were four, okay? Uh, Repeated unjust imprisonments, You can follow the book of Acts and see where some of them were. We don't even know about some of them, but because he refers to something that happened to him somewhere else that's not in the book of Acts, in one of his letters again. Um, Plots against his wife, uh, betrayed by co-workers, undermined by jealous rivals who would come in after him. He'd go somewhere, and these guys would come in and try to undermine what he did. Um, He was abandoned by friends multiple times. You can think about, you know, the episode in Acts where Mark abandons him. Uh, He was bitten by a deadly snake, which should have killed him, but miraculously didn't. And finally, he was ordered to be beheaded by an insane emperor named Nero. Okay? And here's what Paul says about this. He He doesn't explain the sufferings. He doesn't explain all this terrible stuff. He just says this. This is, this is taken from a, modern, a contemporary translation called the Kingdom New Testament, so you can read it in other versions, but uh, this is how I work it out. The sufferings in the present time are not worth putting alongside the glory that's going to be unveiled for us. We are waiting for that, right? Yes, the creation itself is on tiptoe with expectation. I like the other way of putting it, which I added there, groaning and labor pains. Again, the Greek is talking about a word that the word that's used there is about a woman in the the toughest point of giving birth. Okay, and you ladies will know what that is—the ones that have given birth. Okay, the guys. I'm sorry, guys, we don't really understand that, but Paul uses that verb here. Okay, eagerly awaiting the moment when God's children will be revealed. It all is leading up to that. That's what it's about. In another place, he says, we're filling up. And I've never quite understood this. He says, we are filling up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. What? How could anything be lacking in the sufferings of Christ? I mean, they, they gave salvation to everybody who wants it, right? It was sufficient for Christ to say on the cross, it is finished. There was nothing lacking in that. What Paul, I think, is saying is that the sufferings of Christ are not done. Christ's sufferings are right here because we are the body of Christ. Christ's sufferings are in Sri Lanka because those are our brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. They're in Nigeria. You can pick any Pakistan, Iraq. Pick a country. The sufferings of Christ are still going on. We are still in this groaning phase, waiting for this revelation. Are you eagerly, 
Are you eagerly expecting and looking forward to? Are you up on your tiptoes and say, I can hardly wait? Not for the sufferings, but for the glory, right? What God is going to bring out of it. And what is the foretaste of it? Paul's answer, Jesus' answer, the apostles, Peter, and you can read it in Peter and John and the other apostles writing in the New Testament. Their answer is the resurrection. That's what it is. That's God's promise and pledge that this is not all for nothing. This is not just meaningless. The resurrection is God's answer. Because what he says about that is that Jesus came to this earth and got right down in the, de- in the, in the nitty-gritty. He got right down and dirty with us. Everything that you've d- gone through, Jesus has gone through. Well, I guess he didn't get married, so he maybe, although he un- I'm sure he understood it. He lived in a large family. He knew what that was like. He knew what all the bickering was about. You just have to read few of the episodes that he has, you know, when his brothers come and try to drag him off and say he's gone crazy. Yeah. And even his mom at one point seems to have had a doubt or two. And the answer to all of it was Jesus came here not to give us, you know, a theological explanation because that's not going to satisfy you anyway. He came to give you the assurance by being here, by going through it, by dying in the most horrible way possible. The most innocent victim that's ever lived, who never did anything wrong, and yet he was treated exactly the way every other innocent victim, worse has ever been treated. All those things he said, abandonment, rejection, physical abuse, mocking, desertion by all of his friends. Horrible, the most horrible physical suffering possible to imagine. Jesus came down and he did it. But he didn't stay there. And he said, I know you're going through that stuff. I know it's really tough. It can be really tough. But you're not going to die. He said, if you believe in me, even though you die, you shall live. And not just have a resurrection into the same stuff, right? That's why reincarnation is like the idea of reincarnation. But you want to be reincarnated? Really? Come back to do this again? Huh? I mean, there's some good things, but you know what I mean? You want to go through all that stuff again? No. Our hope is based on this, this one thing. And this is what Paul says. If the Messiah wasn't raised, your faith is pointless and you're still in your sins. If it's only for this present life that we would put our hope in the Messiah, we are the most pitiable members of the human race. The resurrection is God's seal on the creation that he made thousands or whatever it was years ago, 
that when he said it was good, it didn't stop being good, it got twisted. And God means to redeem all of it, including us, including you know, these broken physical forms that we have that get sick and die, to make that new, to make the whole creation new, to answer all of the things. And he's offering it all to everybody. That makes Christianity unique because all these other things are based on, you know, follow a teaching, something or other, you know, there's this great philosophy, whatever. Christianity, you know, you can have a great philosophy based on Christianity, you can do all of that, but it's all empty if our founder and a redeemer died and never came back. It's just like following something else. Christianity is the most inclusive family that's ever, ever existed. Christianity excludes nobody that wants in. Nobody. Doesn't matter where they're from. Doesn't matter if they're old or young. If they're genius or mentally impaired, physically impaired, makes no difference. It's open to everybody. It doesn't mean your pain goes away now, but it means that we'll be all transformed. Even the worst things will be transformed. So, a little bit long today, but um, I think Jesus said, if you have faith or trust, even like a mustard seed, you can say to the mountain standing in front of you, be cast into the sea. And that sea is the sea of God's love and the sea of his forgiveness. Jesus didn't permanently raise Lazarus from the dead. The people that he healed later died. But what they knew was the truth of what Jesus had told them. Some of us are, you know, you've got a mountain standing in front of you. I, I don't know what it would be. Maybe you're still addicted to being God, right? <laughs> it could be anything. You know what it is. But if you've got a spark of faith, a spark of trust in you, you don't have to stay there. That can be changed. So I'm going to pray. Uh, I'll pray um, that uh, even though wherever you are, it can be a tough thing and maybe it looks like a mountain. Okay, and you need to take, I mean, you can you know, take this where you want to, want to go with it and think about your own mountain, okay? And take that spark of faith and put it with the mountain in your hand and then just release it to God. Okay. Father God, Jesus called you Father. And Jesus has brought us into your family so we can call you Father. And that's how Jesus taught us to pray.
So, Father God, we come to you with trust, not with all the answers, and we know that maybe there's some things in our lives you haven't given us a clear answer to. And maybe right now it's just looks like a mountain. So we pray, Lord, with the tiny faith that we have, declare that we're going to trust you to remove that mountain that's blocking us from being fully aware of your love for us, for experiencing your peace and your comfort, the kind of comfort that Jesus brings us. We cling to your son, Jesus, who allows us to come into your presence. And because we do that, you said you will hear us. So hear us today, Lord, as we bring these things to you and we declare we're going to trust you, that you're going to bring us through, that you'll be with us in the midst of whatever it is we're, we're working with. Physical things, spiritual things, emotional things, psychological, economic, whatever they are, Lord, you know what they are. And we just say that, Lord, we're going to walk with you through it and say to this mountain, be moved. Change us, renew us. Make us into the image of your son, Jesus, so that we can offer comfort to those others. And you can be the God of comfort to them, uh, others who are going through the tough stuff, Lord. And maybe you're coming with the kind of questions we were talking about that maybe we don't have a nice answer to, but we can say, we know somebody who is always there and will take you through. And I pray in his name, Jesus, our Lord, your Son, our Savior and Redeemer. Amen.